bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. I do hope that you and your family are safe and well. We at Novogratik, across all our offices, have been working from home for the past two months to practice social distancing. In fact, today is day 65, but who's counting? Thanks to preparation and technology, we've been able to continue to serve our clients and share important information with our community while working remotely. I do have a lot of important news to share with you in today's podcast, and you may have expected that this week's episode would open with the $3 trillion COVID-19 relief package that the House passed last week. But considering that the House bill has virtually no chance of being enacted as written, I'm going to start with something different. An affordable housing report that NCHA and Novogratik released last week. The findings of this report could have major implications for affordable housing production and preservation for the next 10 years and beyond. From there, I'll discuss some important updates to the Paycheck Protection Program, including the recently released loan forgiveness application, as well as information on how some borrowers may be eligible to apply for an increased PPP loan amount. After that, I'll talk briefly about the $3 trillion COVID-19 relief bill, as well as presidential candidate Joe Biden's updated housing and community development plan. As a teaser, Biden's plan specifically addresses both the low-income housing tax credit and the new markets tax credit. From there, I'll close with some important updates from California, including a provision in the governor's budget proposal that could dramatically and adversely affect the building and preservation of affordable housing in the state of California. You may have seen my retweet of the news yesterday as the understatement of the day. If you're ready, let's get started. So I'll begin the podcast by sharing some findings from a special analysis that the National Council of State Housing Agencies asked Novogratz to conduct. Findings of the report could have major implications for the production and preservation of much-needed affordable rental housing. Now, the report was commissioned before the COVID-19 pandemic hit the nation, but the housing conditions that prompted the request for the analysis have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Now, the report focuses on the so-called 50% test for housing that's financed by productivity bonds and the 4% low-income housing tax credit. Under current law, if at least 50% of a residential rental property's aggregate basis, that's aggregate basis of land and building, If more than 50% is financed by tax-exempt private activity bonds, well, then the property is eligible to receive 4% low-income housing tax credits on the entire amount of the property's qualified basis. Now, the 50% test threshold is turning out to be posing a problem for some tax-exempt bond finance properties currently in the pipeline because of COVID-19. These properties received a bond allocation that they originally expected to be enough to satisfy the 50% test. But given increased cost and the extended development timelines because of the COVID-19 pandemic, well, they're now in danger of not having sufficient tax of bonds to meet the 50% finance by requirement. Now, furthermore, the demand for productivity bond volume cap in many states is increasing faster than the supply, which creates a challenge for states in managing the productivity bond cap resources. Where do they use them? Now, in light of this shortage in productivity bond volume cap, the National Council of State Housing Agency's Novogratik report addresses the following question. What would happen 
if Congress lowered the percentage of aggregate basis that must be financed with private activity bonds in order to receive the full amount of 4% low income housing tax credits? Well, the report released last week considers what would happen if the 50% threshold were lowered to either 40%, 33%, or even 25%, cut in half. What do we find? Lowering the finance by threshold would free private activity bond cap. That freed cap could be used for more rental housing or other eligible uses. It would also enable those pipeline properties that I mentioned earlier to receive the full amount of 4% low-income housing tax credits, even if they fell below 50%, since the threshold would be lower to 40, 33, or 25%. Now, the Nuremberg analysis assumed that all of the freed private activity bond cap would be devoted to financing residential rental housing. The report also assumes that existing gap financing is scalable. Based on these assumptions, Novogratic estimates that lowering the 50% threshold to 40%, a 10% reduction, would provide capacity to produce or preserve an estimated 355,000 additional affordable rental homes over a decade. And if the threshold went down even further to 33%, and again, gap financing is scalable, well then 732,000 additional homes could be produced or preserved over 10 years. And Congress dropped the threshold in half to 25%. The capacity to produce or preserve affordable rental housing increases to 1.4 million affordable housing units over 10 years. That would roughly double the number of units compared to current law. Now again, that's assuming that all freed private activity bond cap is devoted to rental housing and that developers could access a scalable amount of gap financing. But even if gap financing is scalable by only 50%, then lowering the threshold to 25% would still provide the capacity to produce or preserve 710,000 additional units over 10 years. And as I said, this report can have significant implications for the future of affordable housing. The current pandemic makes the existing affordable housing crisis even more urgent. And lowering the finance by threshold is one option to help make more affordable housing development financially feasible. I'll include a link to the special report in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. Next, I have some updates on the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. The PPP is a forgivable loan program that helps businesses keep their workforce employed during the pandemic. In oversimplified terms, a PPP loan may be forgiven if the borrower uses the loan for payroll, rent, mortgage interest, and utilities. Now, the amount eligible for forgiveness is reduced to the extent employee headcounts or wages are reduced. Now, the program's more nuanced than that, but that's a broad brush overview of the PPP. Now, the SBA last week did release the application instructions for PPP loan forgiveness. PPP funds are eligible for forgiveness if spent on payroll, rent, mortgage interest, and utilities that are incurred or paid during the loan's covered period. The covered period of a PPP loan is eight weeks or 56 days after the PPP loan disbursement date. So if a borrower received PPP loan proceeds on April 20th, then April 20th is the first day of the covered period, and eight weeks later is the last day of the covered period, June 14th. Obviously, the loan disbursement date might not fall at the beginning of an employer's pay period. As such, the SBA does offer an alternative payroll covered period for borrowers who want to align their PPP covered period with their payroll dates and who have a biweekly or more frequent payroll schedule. Now, only with respect to payroll expenses, the alternative allows borrowers to begin 
their eight-week payroll cover period on the first day of their first pay period following the PPP loan disbursement date, allowing borrowers to align their PPP payroll cover period with their payroll schedule can help simplify administrative work for borrowers. So let's illustrate. Let's take the loan disbursement date from our earlier example. A borrower's PPP disbursement date is April 20th, but the first day of its first pay period after that disbursement is April 26th. Under the alternative payroll cover period, the PPP borrower may elect to begin its covered payroll period on April 26th, which pushes the last day of the alternative payroll cover period to June 20th. It's still an eight-week covered period. It's just moved to align with the payroll schedule. Now, payroll costs are considered incurred on the day that the employee's pay is earned. If those payroll costs are incurred but not paid during the covered period or alternative payroll covered period, then those payroll costs are still eligible forgiveness if they're paid on or before the next regular payroll date. Similarly, eligible non-payroll costs must be paid or incurred during the covered period or paid on or before the next regular billing date, even if the billing date is after the covered period ends. Now, the application instructions also describe how to calculate certain required reductions in the borrower's loan forgiveness amount. For example, the loan forgiveness amount will be reduced for borrowers whose average weekly number of full-time equivalency employees is less during the covered period or alternative payroll covered period as compared to one of the specified periods earlier in the year or last year that have been selected by the borrower. In other words, if a borrower doesn't maintain certain FTE staffing levels, then the forgivable loan amount diminishes. The SBA does provide certain exceptions to full-time equivalency reductions that affect PPP loan amounts that are forgiven. FTE reductions are not taken into account to the extent a borrower makes a good faith written offer to rehire an employee during the covered period or alternative payroll covered period and the employee rejects the offer. Similarly, if during the covered period or the alternative payroll covered period, employees were fired for cause, they voluntarily resigned or they voluntarily requested and received a reduction in their hours, then the associated FTE reduction does not affect the PPP loan forgiveness amount. Now, the PPP application does also provide a full-time equivalent reduction safe harbor. A borrower who reduced FTE employee levels between February 15th and April 26th, but restores its FTE levels by June 30th to the February 15th levels, does qualify for the safe harbor. In addition to the loan forgiveness application last week, the SBA has also been busy releasing and updating other guidance on the PPP. One example, last week, the SBA updated its frequently asked questions to provide a certification safe harbor for PPP loans of $2 million or less. So if you have a PPP loan with an original principal amount of $2 million or less, well, the SBA will now deem you as having met the required good faith certification concerning the necessity of your loan request. Now, it may bear cautioning that this safe harbor is only with respect to that one certification. The safe harbor does not prevent the SBA from reviewing ap your application for other reasons. The safe harbor is also not necessarily binding on other government or enforcement agencies. Also, don't forget, as mentioned in a prior podcast, presidential candidate Joe Biden has already promised, if president, to investigate many recipients of PPP loan proceeds, an effort he would start the first day of his administration, or at least that's what he said in a tweet. 
Now, the SBA last week also released an interim rule providing guidance on the ability to increase certain PPP loans, basically meaning you can borrow more. That's, that's it. Certain borrowers may be able to increase their loan amounts. Now, the reason the SBA is allowing PPP lenders to increase certain existing loans is because borrowers who applied for and received PPP loans already received those before certain guidance was published in April and may not have received the full amount for which they were eligible. Let me explain some events that may have led to this outcome of borrowers having received less than the full amount for which they're eligible. In an interim rule published April 14th, the SBA said that partners in a partnership may not submit a separate PPP loan application for themselves as self-employed individuals. Instead, partners should include their earned partnership income with the partnership's PPP loan. And on April 28th, Treasury posted an interim final rule providing an alternative criterion for calculating the maximum loan amount for PPP loans issued to seasonal employers. That means that some PPP loans that were approved to partnerships or seasonal employers before the digital guidance was released could have been larger. So this interim rule published last week seeks to address this by authorizing all PPP lenders to increase existing PPP loans to partnerships or seasonal employers. Partnerships would be an increase to cover that partner compensation that was to come through the partnership as explained in the April 14th notice. And for seasonal employers, they would be able to receive additional loans and calculate the maximum loan amount using the alternative criterion that was released on April 28th. Now this interim rule, it's effective immediately. And it does apply to all PPP loan applications submitted through June 30th. June 30th, by the way, is the last day that eligible borrowers can apply for and receive a loan. If you think this interim rule, final rule that is, applies to you, please contact Novogratz, Megan Murphy, or Risa Kareem. They can provide some assistance. They can help you determine if you qualify for the additional loan amount and how to apply for it. Their contact information is included in today's show notes. And for our listeners who have already applied for a PPP loan, I still encourage you to contact the Novogratz office near you. Our team can help you document your eligibility for loan forgiveness can also help with any tax or accounting questions that you may have regarding your PPP loan. Now, let's talk about the massive $3 trillion COVID-19 relief bill, the bill that many of you probably thought I was going to lead with. This is the bill that was passed by the House last week. The bill is called the HEROES Act, and HEROES is an acronym for the Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act. Obviously, someone stayed up late thinking through that acronym and that name, that title of the bill. And among many other provisions, the HEROES Act would provide additional funding for HUD and the CDFI fund. In particular, the bill provides $100 billion in emergency rental assistance funding, which would be distributed through HUD's Emergency Solutions Grant recipients. Now, unfortunately, there are no low-income housing tax credit provisions in the bill, such as the 4% floor or lowering the 50% test. Similarly, no new market tax credit or historic tax credit provisions. But as I did mention earlier, the Heroes Act is essentially dead on arrival in the Senate. On the Senate floor last week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell repeatedly called the Heroes Act a democratic wish list. So why should we discuss a bill that won't get passed? Well, the same reason that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pushed forward on the bill. The Heroes Act signals Democrats' priorities, and it indicates what direction the next phase of COVID-19 relief may take. Now, the silver lining here is Leader McConnell 
did acknowledge last week that another round of COVID-19 relief will be needed. That acknowledgement at least suggests that there's a path forward to some form of relief legislation. So, emerging rental assistance could end up in the final phase four bill. And local housing tax credit advocates will continue to push for including the 4% floor and other provisions in a bill that passes. All that remains to be answered, though, are the big questions. What provisions will that eventual legislation contain? How much will it cost? And how or to what extent will it be paid for? Now, for more details on business relief, affordable housing, and community development provisions of the HEROES Act, please see our Notes from Novogak blog post. I'll include a link to the post in the show notes and tweet it out as well. Next, I want to highlight presidential candidate and presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden's recently updated housing plan. This plan is a follow-up to the plan that Biden released earlier this year. The updated plan includes $640 billion of investment over 10 years into community development and affordable housing resources, including the low-income housing tax credit, the new markets tax credit, the capital magnet fund, and more. Now, first, Biden's plan would establish a $100 billion affordable housing fund. This $100 billion fund would be used to construct and upgrade affordable housing. If elected, Biden said he would also work with Congress to expand the low-income housing tax allocation authority by $10 billion. Now, the current allocation authority is about $10 billion, so candidate Biden is essentially calling for doubling the annual allocation authority. Now, Biden has not specified how quickly the proposed increase would be phased in. This additional investment is intended to make the credits more efficient, therefore increasing the amount of new and rehabilitated affordable housing. Now, Biden's plan also includes several provisions for community development. Most notably, the plan would expand and make permanent the new market tax credit with $5 billion in funding every year. Now, this plan is just an outline, and Biden is still just a candidate for the presidency. But the plan does signal that a Biden administration would be supportive of these incentives. The low-income housing tax credit and the new market tax credit are going to be increasingly important as a nation's economy recovers from the pandemic. If you want to learn more about how to deal with pandemic-related challenges to your investments and properties, I encourage you to attend our Novogratic webinars on this subject. We're always adding new live webinars to our calendar of trainings, and we offer on-demand recordings of previously aired webinars, just in case you weren't able to attend the live training. Now, Novogratic does have an upcoming webinar this Thursday on new markets tax credit challenges related to the pandemic. In that webinar, my partner, Brad Elphick, will talk about what regulatory and programmatic issues need to keep an eye on. Now, on the housing front, Novogratic had a webinar this past Friday on how COVID-19 is affecting low-income housing tax credit development and operations. That webinar covers what you need to know about deadline extensions, compliance monitoring, and more. I'll include a link to our webinar's homepage in today's show notes and tweet them out as well. Now I'd like to turn to some state news, some California state news. California Governor Gavin Newsom released his revised budget plan last week, the May revise, with a June 30 budget deadline. And in his May revise, he provided both good and bad news for affordable housing. The good news, the May revise retained the governor's original request for $500 million in state low housing tax credits are the state's aggressive move to fund affordable rental housing. What's the bad news? The state is facing a $54 billion budget shortfall. And to help close the gap, Newsom proposes a limit 
on the ability to use business tax credits, including the state low-income housing tax credit. Under the proposal, taxpayers would not be able to offset more than $5 million of state tax per year for three years with business tax credits. Basically, in the years 2020, 2021, and 2022, a taxpayer would be limited to using $5 million in business tax credits, including the state low-income housing tax credits. Now, low-income housing tax credit investors could, of course, still claim federal tax credits, but this temporary limit on the state low-income housing tax credit, the amount that could be claimed each year, would be a significant roadblock for many investors, and as such, adversely affect equity pricing. Many existing investors would have to defer claiming a portion of their state low-income housing tax credits for at least three years. And under that circumstances, many of these investors would likely attempt to sell some of their current low-income housing tax credit investments. This would further lower adversely affecting equity pricing. And of course, lower equity pricing, lower tax credit pricing, means fewer affordable housing properties are developed and preserved. Stated clearly, this proposal has a serious potential adverse effect on the ability to finance affordable housing in California. I did write a blog post about the issue, and we'll provide the link in today's show notes. I'll also tweet that out. Now, in more news from California, the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee extended some key deadlines last week. SIDLAC, as it's called, oversees the state's private bond allocation. Last week, the committee set new bond application deadlines. The new deadlines, June 11th and September 24th. Both of these deadlines give applicants about a month more to prepare their applications as compared to the previous deadlines. As we've discussed before, California faces a major affordable housing crunch and plans to use about 85% of its 2020 bond allocation on multifamily residential rental housing. The state expects the bond allocation this year to be competitive. SIDLEC also announced that it was implementing self-scoring in its application portal. If you need assistance in preparing your application, please reach out to a Novogratic office. Well, that brings it to the end of this week's report. But before I close, I want to share a reminder. Novogratic is hosting two virtual conferences in July. We have an Opportunity Zones virtual conference on July 15th and a new Markets Tax Credit virtual conference on July 23rd. If you register by May 31 for the Opportunity Zones conference or by June 7th for the new Markets Tax Credit conference, you're going to get the early bird discount. What is the early bird discount? Well, the early bird rate is only $49 per event. So you'll want to register now. Don't even wait till May 31st or June 7th. Just go in and register today. I'll include a registration link in the show notes and tweet it out as well. Register now, $49 for each event, Opportunity Zones and New Markets Tax Credits. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.